0: Letter Twenty-One Unset It's been a whole week since your first coming with your pretty face but not a peep from neither of you has been heard never since Oh, heavenly one I say in my daily prayers what about this second coming then do I get no replies that's right I get none you must have seen my first revelations by now did you not like them I should have thought my foreign solicitor and his foreign assistant must be banging at the gates by now. Do I hear their shouts? Let us in. We need to know how it all ends. No, I don't. So I sit idle a few more days. Then I think, I know. I will do my second revelations, no matter what. But I will do these most terrible revelations in topmost secret. And once it's done, I will hide it in a place no prick will never think of finding it. No prick won't even know where to look. They can strip-search me. They can spin my cell from heaven to hell. Only, they won't uncover this apocalypse, because it will be hidden in the hollow of my right arm. Data Protection Clause This writing is the utmost secret text there is. Unless you visit me again, you won't never clap eyes on it. What this means is, you won't never know what's happened. But there's worse to come. If you do visit me again, Otto, and I slip my apocalypse into the palm of your handshake, You will finally know the dreaded truth and it will make you shudder. Only you will not be able to say not one fucking word to no one about it. That's the deal. No telling. As long as we both live and breathe. Cause if you do tell, my cushy life is over with. Where I left it in my first revelations was, there's a body buried in the barking mud. I told you where that body was. Did you uncover it? I'll wager you filed your nails while you're pretty-faced on the heavy lifting. Your sort don't do digging dead bodies out the mud. That's what staff is for. Never mind. Being a solicitor, you will know what to do with someone's bones once they get murdered. Am I right? Now hear this. That ain't just nobody's bones you dug up. That's my bones. Confused as fuck? Let us consider together. To sort this tangle out, you will need your specks and a mug of strong tea. You might also like to confer with your pretty face, because she ain't just a pretty face. Are you sitting comfortably? Feet up? Then I shall revelate all. My real name ain't Jenny whatever. It's Johnny Tanner. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, first it's Jenny, then it's Marley, now it's Johnny. Make up your fucking mind. But I will say to you, don't blame me, mate. Blame science, cause my mind got made up for me. And what's more, I can prove it. I got a national insurance number. You can check, NA245439B. I was born on the 19th of February, 1997. I had my shit life, then I died. Cause on the 8th of April, 2016, I got murdered by a fucking scientist. Before he'd done his crime against humanity, my murderer found me clucking under a wall He said he should like to do something special for me. If I was ready to give up my shit life, he says, he will give me a whole new one. I look at him and go, you're as tall as your tails, friend. But he says, what's to fucking lose, Johnny? He's got a point, though. I mean to say, what would you do if a scientist come along, saying how he can get you an upgrade for the walking corpse you live in? My body was done for. I couldn't hardly grovel to the nearest shops just to nick stuff. So he puts me in the back of his van and we shoots off to his lab. It's in a building made of glass with sliding doors at the front. There ain't no one about and there's a bed ready for me. It's got wheels on. Once I'm tucked in nice and snug, my new chum scores me a handful of pink pills. After that, He wheels me into his lab. Those pink pills done the trick, mind. I was zoned out. But not so much so that my blurry vision couldn't see how the lab I'm in is packed with sciences and technologies. It's all blinking and humming. Now there's a white plastic tube thing big enough to squeeze me into. Johnny Tanner will end his days in that tube. I'm fading fast as I look around. I seen a copper cauldron with pipes and things coming out the sides. I'm thinking, what the fuck's that? Then the buffin only goes and pulls his lethal injection out. He's flicking the needle with his fingers. Just before my arm gets pumped full of something pure, he goes, tiny prick, which was fucking rude. Two seconds later, I was dead. There weren't time to say nothing back to him. Don't get me wrong. I'm not Jenny. I'm no kind of Jenny. That was my lying to help you get the twistiness of what I really am. I'm not even Johnny no more. As I've been saying all this long, this side of my story is the gospel according to Marley. It's just that before she was murdered by a fucking scientist, Marley was a crackhead called Johnny. The rest wasn't all fibs neither. When I told you how I come back from the dead, that weren't me telling Porkies. It was real. All I'd done was make up the bits about me being a happy girl in hospital and all that bollocks about how I found out who I really was from some leery doctor. He was fake, because I made him up. You didn't really believe the social come after me that time, did you? Once I was scum of the street again, They didn't give a fuck. If you're sitting comfortably, how I found out who I really was goes like this. I woke up. There was a bedside table with a light. The light was on. I looked about. I was still in the same bed with wheels. It was a beige room, just like a hospital room. Only this room was private. I swings my leg out the bed, and done a nice stretch. I put my fingers on my face. No spots. No lumps. No stubble. Then I felt how long and thick my hair was. Shall I tell you what the thing about going private is? When they bring you back from the dead on the private, you feel top-notch. But no, I did not burst into songs straight away, because I known something was wrong. That's when I remembered the fucking scientist. He promised I would get a new body for my brain to live in. It seems I did. He promised this new body would be more stronger than I could imagine. He didn't get that wrong neither. He said as long as I didn't fuck it up, my new body will go a thousand years and not need batteries. We shall have to see One thing i known straight away though, when a scientist makes promises, what he says will happen, fucking happens. Only, there's a catch. What happens ain't never what you had in mind could happen. What my fucking scientist forgot to say was this. When I wake up from being murdered, I will have melon-sized boobies. I will have curvy bits. My spindly legs with festering sores will be gone. Instead, I will be pacing the floors with long and slender versions. I slipped off my bed. There weren't no windows. The door was locked. I didn't have nothing on. When I looked down beneath my new boobies, I seen my shapely legs. I wiggled them. Then I seen how I didn't have my prick where it should be. My prick was gone. To a bloke of 17, this can only come as a bolt from the blue. I shouted for help, but who was fucking shouting? I didn't even know my own voice no more. You will grant. What I never got promised was the tranny ride my new body turned out to be. But soon, that wouldn't matter no more. I never felt better. The first thing I noticed was how I could notice things. The next thing I noticed after I noticed how I could notice things was how I could think about what I noticed. I found out then thinking weren't what I thought it was. I thought you had to scrunch your eyebrows to think. I thought you had to bite your lips. It turns out you don't have to do none of that if you don't want to. It just happens. And what I realized after I realized I could think was I should get over the fact I ain't a fucking bloke no more and be thankful for scientific wonders. Because the truth is, Johnny Tanner was dead from the start of his shit life. He grew up running away. He got raped by his fake dad. He was a professional crackhead most of his days. Then he got murdered age 17 by a fucking scientist. But hold that next thought... Don't go saying what utter bollocks, or how I'm just a lying wretch you can't believe no more. What I'm telling you now, Otto, is pure gospel. Yes, I will grant. I made believe I was Jenny whatever. But I only done this to make things nice and easy for you. It's all the same. Jenny was scum, so was Johnny. Put it another way, Jenny was a fake of Johnny. It was a good fake. His life was shit. Her life was the same shit. Then I noticed how I'm thinking this thought. Being in a body with boobies and no prick is something a bloke could get used to. It weren't painful. I didn't even want drugs no more. I had to pinch myself to make sure of this. I pinched hard. I didn't feel that neither. Do you know what? I shall tell you what. Even though I was stalkers, that's when I noticed myself hopping about. I didn't sing no songs yet in case people was listening. I giggled merrily though. After I brought my fist down on the door handle and broke it off, I thought how being a scientific wonder is full of pleasant surprises. I'll be able to fly next. I jumped in the air a few times and thought hard about it, but nothing happened. You might like to sip your tea and adjust your bum while I recap it all. My beautiful body, with Johnny Tanner in it, was born in Barking on the 8th of April, 2016. That was the day Johnny Tanner was killed and chopped up by my maker. Did you know most people got one maker? I got two. There's the greater maker in heaven above. He's the holy father of the universe. And there's my lesser maker in barking. He's Julius Haft, fucking scientist. Amen. After I smashed the door of my private room, I slinked down a corridor with no windows, naked as the day I was born. Because it was the day I was born. There was a door at the end. I could hear rattling inside. I didn't bother knocking. I smashed the handle and went straight in with my tits hanging out. I said, "'Oi, you! What the fuck's this all about?' I was waving my hands here and there to show him my new features. He stood from his desk, licking his lips. He kept standing and standing. That's how tall he is. Then he says, just like foster carers would, "'Go back to your room this instant.' He's pointing at the door i just come through. He picks up his mobile, because he reckons it might not be no bad idea to have a word with security. So I goes over and slaps the mobile out of his hands. It mobiles straight through his posh window. The glass breaks everywhere. There's a breeze now. Haft is shouting. He goes, You only fucking broke my arm. That's when I seen the river. The tide was out. I noticed how I was noticing things again. The things I was noticing now was pictures on the walls. It was pictures of Scarley. The thing is though, I didn't know what she looked like then. In one picture, she was walking up the steps with a skirt on, nice legs. There was pictures of her doing her shopping. She's rolling her trolley down the booze aisle. Not before long, I would be paying for her booze in that very same shop with her bank card. It's just that I didn't know nothing about those times back then. While I stared at his pictures, Julius, not Julian, was clutching his bad arm. He was grunting nicely, in the kind of anguish no wankstain should be without. I goes to him, Take your trousers off. Now your shirt. Now your shoes. Now your socks. You can keep your grubby boxers. I'll have the jacket, though. He obeys my orders. He knows he's in shit. Once I'm in garments, miles too long for me, and he's looking like the sorry knob he really is, I tell my lesser maker to explain the creepy pics he's got all over his walls. I could already tell what a perv he was. He says I'm a fake of the woman in those pictures. I still don't know who she is, mind. Only he says this hardly don't matter. I grin at him, as if I'm about to be nice. There's a computer on his desk. I pick it up and throw it at him. I miss, but he gets my drifties now. He's shouting and skipping about. Stop fucking breaking things, will you? She's called Charlotte Godwin. The next thing I found out was my true name is Marley. Not Jenny, nor Johnny, but Marley, which is short for Marlene which is a name my lesser maker seems to find hilarious. He can't stop grinning even if his arm was broke. Fucking scientists, can you believe it? He's got the science to fake the body of the woman he's stalking and the nerve to stick Johnny Tanner's brain in it. There he is with his boxers, shivering in the breeze, holding his arm close to his chest, and blow me if he ain't grinning. I would have wanted a hot bath if I was him. But he reckons it's time to tell me I'm his latest intervention to save the fucking world. He says I'm just stage one. Then I find out how I got printed on a fucking machine. What's that make me? He says I'm a prototype. So I goes, enough of your foul language. Explain this, fuckface. How did you get my brain into the female you call Marlene? You ain't no female, he says, calm as fuck. You're just a model. I've had enough of this. So I tell him, I can see that, you slimy wanker. I come straight out your private porno. What I want to know next is this. What have you done with the brains of Johnny Tanner? The prick is shaking his sorrowful head next he still dares to be amused. Still rubbing his broke arm, he manages another smirk as he nods to his broke window where there ain't nothing to see but mud and gulls and a shopping trolley. The apocalypse he revelates then is this. All the flesh and bones, all the organs and the eyes, the private bits and even the pulp that is poor Johnny Tanner's dead brain, it is all there rotting in a shallow grave next to that shopping trolley. Meanwhile, every moving bit of my new fabulous me is made out of space-age fluids and plastics and condoms and what have you. Fuck! I could have broke his neck for him. Maybe I should have. But I needed to leave my new place of birth. I needed to make plans and do things in the future. So I climbed out of his broke window and jumped down. It was a drop to the shore. It didn't hurt when I landed, cause from then on, nothing hurts. Nothing hurts. I smashed through his fence with my fist. After that, I crawls back into the streets where I comes from. I will stop there, cause what comes next is how I end up living with my twin sister, less than a year later, and what happens to us in far-off Cambridge. Only... I can hear the doors being unlocked. So I will finish the rest of my secret revelations before lights out. Right now, it's time to mop the landing. That afternoon, after I dropped you off, I returned the hire car and walked back to Dorothy's flat. She was back early from court, so we went for a drink. I talked mainly about you, about our prison visit, about Marley's hopeless case. It was a conversation made for heavy drinking. Back in the flat, I felt myself sink into a gloom. Dorothy had made up a bed for me on her sofa. In light of our discussion, she gave me a book to read. I couldn't focus on the text, but one sentence did stick in my mind. Lying and poetry are arts. They require the most careful study. I tried to think of the poems I loved, and whether they were lies, too. As I lay on my back, as low as I thought I could possibly feel, my phone pinged with a text. I was hoping it was you. But it wasn't. Instead, it was a text telling me about Ava Gillian. I think the ficker did it in less than fifty words. To avoid her trial, Ava had decided to plead guilty, he wrote. His message glowed with professional prowess. Between the lines, Bride was letting me know that from its disastrous beginnings, he had single-handedly managed to steer Ava's case to the only outcome required by the system. It was a pity she'd been given a prison sentence, he added. But it was only a short one. With luck, she'd be out in time to start her gardening course. My phone dropped to the floor. It fell next to the book I'd been trying to read. It was the collected works of Oscar Wilde. Dorothy had suggested an essay called The Decay of Line. I don't even know why anymore. Wilde seemed to think there was nothing wrong with deception. It's the essence of creativity. And what do we have left if we can't be creative? As I lay there in my despondency, there was a humming notion somewhere in the circuitry of my thoughts. A weird echo of Wilde's claim. It was that No truth can exist without the lies that define it. But I had a headache, and I didn't want to follow wherever that thought was leading me. We might put it down to the alcohol, but it wasn't just that. It was everything. It was everything I was, everything I did. Over the course of just a few hours, Dorothy and I had managed to trash our professions. It was a conversation I'd had in shorter form many times. It's infused with a routine hopelessness. Justice, we chorused over our beers, was the biggest lie of them all. What can you do? Forge ahead, I said. Forge ahead. We ended our session by raising our glasses to forging ahead. Forty-eight hours had passed since you and I had visited Molly. I'd been trying to contact you. I thought maybe you'd gone out with friends, but you still weren't answering and it was close to midnight by then. Because of my headache, I was less able to prioritize and clarify my thoughts. I wanted to get a taxi to your place to make sure you were okay, but I didn't do this. I couldn't move. In some more remote corner of my brain, I heard Oscar Wilde's odd lament in a kind of reedy voice. Nothing is more evident than that nature hates mind. I guess what he meant was, nature hates a clever clogs. Wilde must have thought the true artist needs to be able to lie his head off. I shut my eyes. I tried to picture the true artist. But that picture disappeared into a vortex I could see reproducing itself. Do you know what I mean? I don't suppose you do. I'm babbling again. It's all I'll ever be able to do. Then I had this idea that life doesn't just imitate art. It imitates everything. You might wonder what it's like to disappear into a sofa. I can tell you. The first thing you notice is that you can't get up. You might have thoughts, but each thought is a strand dangling in front of you. These strands are long and colorful. In my case, they seem to be woven arbitrarily. They come together only because they're woven in me. Bride's text message, for example, would have been threaded in and out of my concern for your welfare. Marley's letters had made their own strange patterns, working in tandem with the ruins of Ava Gillian's youth. Gathering into a tight cluster was the resignation I shared with my friend, Dorothy. She and I understood one thing, though. No matter how pointless a situation seems, there's always room to make minor adjustments. We drank to minor adjustments, more than once— There were other patterns like these, repeating themselves in me as I lost my way on the sofa. One of them had the darker tones of my private life. This part of the tapestry is my deep past, your mother, your grandparents, the aspirations of a different age. What made me leave you all behind? To be honest, Izzy, it was madness. It was a real disorder in me. I don't believe anybody could have done anything about at the time. Over decades of consciousness and sleep, all of this was being stitched together so that it makes up what I am now. What I fear is, ever since that near fatal attack on me, it might all be unraveling. It hasn't stopped feeling as if I've woken up from the dead. Maybe this is the one loose strand I have left, Even within the details of all those patterns emerging as me, I was aware of this loose strand, as yet unconnected, but expressed in the most compelling ways. I was startled when my phone buzzed. Conscious of a stale, vaguely dilapidated feeling, I fumbled for it. I still had my trousers on. I'd been wearing the same shirt for three days. I put the phone to my ear. The second I heard your voice, my drowsiness blew away in a gust. You'd been arrested. You said you were being held at a police station on the east side of London. It was just after two in the morning when I got there. I took a cab. The first thing that happened was I fell into an ethical debate with the custody sergeant. She was concerned that as the detained person's father, I was in no position to represent you legally. She felt that a conflict would arise. I persuaded her I could handle it. I said that if you'd been arrested for something more serious, there might have been some merit to her concerns. I was shown to a consultation room, where I spoke with the officer about to conduct the interview. I let him disclose as much as he was comfortable with. He told me that you'd been detained by security personnel at a commercial property on the river. You'd been attempting to enter the property as a trespasser. Damage had been caused to a perimeter fence. The officer told me that you'd been in possession of a garden spade and a roll of bin bags. Christ, Izzy. You'd been arrested on suspicion of going equipped for burglary, not to mention criminal damage to the fence. Where was Miss Lozer detained, I asked. Next to the fence, close to the opening. How big is the opening? It's big enough to crawl through. Was she crawling through it? She wasn't, no. How far away from it was she? About eight feet. This amounted to suspicious behavior, I agreed, but it didn't amount to a crime. But that was my role, to ensure that any doubt was emphasized. The officer's role was to ensure that any doubt was ignored I sighed professionally and said, Going equipped for burglary? With a spade? The man was impassive. He remained indifferent to my mockery. He asked me to sign his disclosure form and left. The consultation room was only slightly bigger than a toilet. It was a bare room with no windows and notes scratched into the paint. There was a strip light on the ceiling. The table and the chairs had been bolted to the floor. There was an intercom near the door. I sat in one of the chairs and waited for you to be escorted from the cells. A few minutes later you were shown in. Once the door was locked from the outside, we hugged. We made no sound. There was just the hint of a sway between us. My eyes were squeezed shut. You were shaking your head. I could smell the scent you'd put on that day. Despite the predicament we were in, our hug was something I never want to forget, Izzy. It was the most primal and satisfying moment I've ever known. Still clinging to each other, we locked eyes. Then we separated. Soon we were facing each other over the table. We spoke in German. They put me in handcuffs. They usually do. Always. Nearly always. They took my phone. They're looking for evidence. It was horrible. It usually is. But why do they behave like that? Like what? Like I'm a suspect. Your activities appear to have aroused suspicion. I wasn't doing anything criminal. Why were you there? Because of Marley's letter. Which one? You haven't seen it yet. Once again, we locked eyes. Between adults, this is the customary way of communicating a surprising fact without words. It seemed to me that your look became sheepish. Now that we'd established there was a letter from Marley I hadn't seen, it raised the possibility of an explanation. Nevertheless, my frustration at not knowing why my daughter was being held in a police station remained physically painful. It was inexplicable to me that you should be prowling around commercial premises late at night with a spade. I could only continue to gape until you told me more. She put the letter in my pocket. When? Probably when she grabbed me, when we were leaving. What does it say? Lots of things. Does it say you should burgle a warehouse? It isn't a warehouse. What is it? It's Malscat Technologies. On this occasion, when we locked eyes, I began to feel even more desperate. You looked away. You said you were sorry. I was impressed that your apology didn't seem to be a plea for sympathy. Your tone of voice felt more to me like you were standing your ground. My love went out to you. But I was biased. I had to be. I had to find any scrap of evidence that could redeem you from the lunacy you'd put yourself through. Then you said what you said. Until then, I'd been able to remain reasonably collected. When you explained that you didn't believe Marley was human, I tried to laugh it off, but that's when my heart really started to sink. You don't get what I'm saying. What are you saying? I'm saying she isn't Charlotte Godwin's twin. What is she then? She's a copy of Charlotte Godwin. Picking nervously at my nails now, I listened to you explain that Marley was the creation of Julius Haft. All the evidence, you insisted pointed to this. Somehow, you'd worked out that there was a technical issue in the process of creating Molly. While Haft would have been able to copy Charlotte's body from the blueprint he'd made, he couldn't copy her brain. I must have asked why not. You looked at me as if I was turning into a gargoyle. Because Charlotte had been alive at the time, you said. Obviously. So he found someone sleeping rough and used her brain instead. I was trying to keep up. You said that was who Marley had been referring to as Jenny in her letters. As far as I could tell, you genuinely seemed to believe that Haft had murdered this drug addict in order to be able to make a copy of her brain. But why would he do that, I asked. I thought reasonably. It may have been an experiment you offered to see if it was possible to make a copy of Charlotte's body function with a copy of another person's brain. My usually lethargic calm cracked then. You probably saw it. I was fidgeting. My eyes were darting from the scratch marks over the walls, back to your face, then away again. Your voice had lowered. I remembered you were saying that making copies of things is what Malscat Technologies was all about. You'd seen the original patents. When you told me you had the documentation in your possession, I immediately guessed what you'd done. You stole patents from your employer's office? It's evidence. Of what? That Malscat Technologies can copy anything. Where are these patents? Under my mattress. I realized I was picking the skin around one of my nails and stopped. The strip light on the ceiling caught my attention again. I needed to find advantages to work with. I told myself that you didn't appear to require immediate psychiatric care. This was a bonus. I focused on this. I formed the view that you had acted on a youthful impulse. You'd arrived at your own bizarre set of conclusions. You hadn't thought your actions through. This was containable. What did you hope to achieve with the spade, I I needed to dig up the body There's a body The drug addict Haft murdered Jenny That's right I understand You don't believe me I think you should have told me about this You're right I should have Why didn't you I didn't think you would believe me Each breath I took came out as a sigh Inwardly There were so many connections, I felt overloaded. Within this morass, I noticed that all you had done was respond to a letter Marley had slipped you. I held out my hand. It was brave of you to go there, I said. You took hold of my hand. I noticed the redness around your wrists where the handcuffs had been locked into place. Where's the letter now, I asked. It's under my mattress, with the patent's. That's fine, as long as the police don't search your room. Can they do that? Yes, but I don't think they will. What should I say to them? Nothing. Nothing? I gripped your hand and told you, step by step, why I thought you should not answer any police questions. The fact that you'd been standing some distance from the perimeter fence was not evidence that you'd caused damage to the fence. You hadn't been trespassing when you were detained. While it was odd that you were carrying a garden spade and some bin bags, this in itself was not evidence that you'd gone there equipped to commit a burglary. What about the body, you said? I explained that we only needed to concentrate on the reasons for your arrest. You hadn't been arrested because of your intention to search for a body. You were not required to give an account of what you'd been doing in barking. Then I had to tell you how English law permitted the police to issue a moderate threat to those who wished to remain silent during their interview. The threat came as a warning. The warning was that if you didn't give your account, and the matter went to trial and you elected at your trial to disclose why you'd gone to Mousecat Technologies, the court would be less likely to believe you. My advice was to disregard this threat and tell the police absolutely nothing. But I want to tell them why I was there. You can't. Why not? If you say anything of the kind, you'll be in breach of client confidentiality. What about the truth, though? Look, Izzy, I said. You took advantage of the fact that Molly gave you a letter. It was given on the assumption that you were my assistant. It remains a privileged document. As lawyers, we cannot go around telling everyone who asks, especially not the police, what a client has shared with us in confidence." There was a short pause while my future was held in the balance. "'You mustn't tell them,' I repeated more quietly now. "'Beyond their suspicions, the police have no evidence of your reasons for being there,' I said. "'As long as you tell them nothing, there's nothing they can do to you.' "'Which only buries the truth even deeper,' was your reply. "'By this time you'd slipped your hand out of mine.' The break in our connection gave me a feeling of mourning. I kept my hand where it was, on the table. In all these agitating impulses, some part of me longed to agree that the truth should never be buried. But it wasn't the professional part of me. You don't know what the truth is, I said at last. You shook your head. At least I was trying to find out. What could we have achieved, Izzy? Once again, the system that operates in the name of justice resolved nothing. You were locked in a cell for five hours. You were forced to listen to the shouts of others detained in the station overnight. Your wrists were sore where the handcuffs had chafed them. Your photographs and biometric information were taken under duress. You were released without charge, as I predicted you would be, and now Nobody is any the wiser. But you continued to insist that Marley was not a twin, not even a human being. Rather, she was a copy of one. It seems that your suspicions began to harden as you researched Malscat technologies using your former employer's database. Once you'd studied the patents, you were positive. And yes... Those patents revealed a technology capable of making atomically precise copies of anything, no matter how complex. (laughs) You mentioned that it was shaking hands with Marley in prison that started you off. Marley's skin didn't feel like real skin. In the end, our discussions concerning these matters were muted. What was I supposed to think? And because of what had happened, we could no longer comfortably perform the roles of father and daughter reunited. I had retrieved from you Marley's 19th letter, as well as the stolen patents, which I returned anonymously. I wasn't surprised when you told me you were going back to Vienna to pick up your life again. The day you were due to leave, we spent the morning in the National Gallery, looking at all the faces. Then we strolled up the mall, into St. James's Park it felt as if we were convalescing later we would go to the airport together we spoke loosely about things without any of the bonds of a purpose we resolved not to tell your mother what had happened not straight away it was plain to me that we shouldn't talk to anyone about it I just couldn't accept that Molly was something artificial created by a mad professor in the image of Charlotte Godwin. Nor could I accept that the reason that Molly functioned at all as a clone of Charlotte was because she was using a version of some dead person's brain. Yes, I understood how you might have arrived at those conclusions, not least by reading Molly's letters. She was a strange hybrid, I have to admit. And it seems that Malscat technologies did develop a highly sophisticated 3D printing technique so they could design and manufacture durable components for military use and space exploration and whatever else. And I guess your theory may well have been one answer to the riddles that persisted in Marley's case, about Marley herself. It may even have addressed our questions about the behaviour of Julius Haft and his relationship with Charlotte. But the better explanation all along, the only one that I could trust, was that Marley was Charlotte's long-lost twin. She was a drug addict with a criminal background. It was difficult to say when, if ever, she was telling the truth. Towards the end of her life, Charlotte became an alcoholic, I would say. The sisters lived together for less than two months. Then they fell out. It seems obvious that during some drunken spat, Marley struck Charlotte over the head with a rock and killed her without meaning to. My practice as a solicitor was to rely on the simplest explanation. But I wanted to indulge you. I wanted to part with you on better terms. Perhaps it was my own tarnished view of the life I was living. But I could already feel the tug of an idea that I should go back to Austria too, And try to pick up the pieces of my own life As we took the tube to the airport I tried to apply myself to the implications of your theory I was ready to concede that it must be possible To make perfect copies of anything that exists Down to the last atom Including human beings But this concession only made you more upset If I thought that, you said It meant that I had to agree with you About what? That Julius Haft is capable of creating copies of people. Yes, he could be capable of that. So you do agree? I didn't say that. What did you say? I said your theory about copying things might be possible. But? Licensing committees, government oversight, it stretches credibility that the authorities wouldn't have been all over this. As long as it's true, does it matter if it's not credible? We were in the departures hall when you said that. You were one of hundreds about to pass through the security cordons. The shuffling rhythm of that process was happening right in front of us. Nobody looked. As a non-passenger I couldn't go any further. I wanted to. You wouldn't believe how much further I wanted to go. Rather than say goodbye, we lingered, to see if we might be able to conclude our last exchange about Marley's case with a compromise. You sensed, rightly, that you'd been getting somewhere with me, that I was bending. You had me speaking hypothetically, using terms that were sensitive to your theory. Let's just think, you said. What if Marley isn't a person? If she's not a person, she can't have committed murder, I said. I blurted this out. I wasn't really thinking. But the deadness in your eyes lifted, so I continued in the same vein. You need to be a person to be a murderer, I said. Does it say person in the code? There is no code. No code? In England, the courts follow a description of murder established not long after Shakespeare died. Is that true? I was taken aback. "'not by the question, but by the force with which you put it. "'Taking your law finals in Austria could not have prepared you "'for the more opaque aspects of English common law. "'I'd become accustomed to the ways of my adoptive land. "'I assured you that it was true. "'I couldn't recall Sir Edward Cook's definition of murder word for word, "'but I did know enough of it to be able to say "'that a murderer had to be a person of sound memory.' Which is exactly what Molly isn't, you said. I smiled. In some sense, I said, I'd have to agree. You were determined to push this, though. It was a pleasure to see your excitement again, if only briefly. Molly is a copy of a person, you said. In fact, she's a copy of two people, Charlotte and Jenny. I kept my smile in place. "'Just answer me this,' you soldiered on. "'If Molly isn't a person, shouldn't she appeal her conviction? "'Even if she did murder Charlotte?' "'She can't have murdered Charlotte.' "'Because she's not a person.' "'Exactly.' "'Because she's a copy of a person.' "'She's a copy of two people.' "'Well,' I said, impressed with the logic you were trying to twist into our discussion.' You might say that I'm a copy of two people. So are you. So is everyone. You might say that, was your reply. But shouldn't it be for a court to decide what Marley is? I was still smiling. It masked a feeling of mild exasperation, but I let the smile speak. It would be the most unprecedented appeal case ever to be lodged with a court, anywhere in the world, I said. And just because I'd gone this far, you made me promise that I'd visit Marley one more time. There was only one reason for me to make that promise, Izzy. My professional resistance to the idea of seeing Marley ever again was overcome by what I feel for you. I had to give in. It was the only way for us to part. When I saw Marley for a second time, she offered me her hand. Even as I shook it, I thought her skin felt less pliant than human skin. I compensated for this observation by telling myself I'd become oversusceptible to the suggestion that Marley was not a real person. Our greeting passed awkwardly. What's more, she'd taken the opportunity to palm a tightly folded sheet of paper into my hand. It was her last letter to me. I put my things on the table. She had what the English call a twinkle in her eye. I asked if I should read the letter straight away. She said it was up to me. So I unfolded Marley's 21st letter and read quickly. I was accustomed by now to the ornate, self centered hand she wrote in and a rhetorical style that seemed to come so naturally. Once again, I was struck by her aptitude for it. But rather than the tedious hedging of her previous letters, in this one, Molly was inviting me to consider the most outlandish explanation possible for her presence in one of Her Majesty's prisons. Quite apart from the fact that she was claiming to have the brain of a boy called Johnny Tanner, her latest instructions to me were exactly as you'd predicted. I couldn't keep myself steady. My vision became blurry. Has your clever assistant buggered off? Marley said. She was only with me for a short time. Always the way, she said. Yes. With most things? Yes. With the things you adore? I looked at her face. She was examining mine. Her flawlessly beautiful eyes were so fixed I had to look away. I picked up my pen and turned to a blank page in my pad. I didn't think Molly was about to tell me the truth. In fact, I'd begun to think she was suffering from a chronic lying disorder. Even so, I asked her about Malscat Technologies. She leaned in towards me. She tapped her final letter on the table between us. It's mostly in there, she said. The only thing Molly hadn't been able to do since being arrested for murder was confess. By way of a confession, she suddenly said she hadn't meant to hurt Charlotte, just to stop her. It was the poem I wrote, she said. Which poem? Secret Scarlet. You wrote that? Shall I tell it to you? I nodded. Molly had memorized it. She recited it then and there. It's no secret. I am scarlet as blood froze solid. If he is squalid, if he's a sham, it's you he is too. Don't you just love it when a harlot opens his heart to you? Is that what scars us? How true we are. How true we are. As I jotted her words down, I found it impossible to believe that Molly had made them up. But she spoke each line softly. Each cadence was sad. It was a register I hadn't heard or detected in her before. I tried not to show how transported I was. Not only from the visits hall, just transported. For the longest moment, that poem seemed to erupt inside me. When Marley finished, I felt a jolt. My pen was in my hand. I was copying the words, how true we are. In the same sad voice, she told me that they began to argue after Charlotte discovered the poem in her notebook. They argued about the meaning of it. Marley kept trying to tell her that she'd been created by Julius Haft. That was what the poem was about. But Charlotte wouldn't believe it. They went on a drinking spree, drinking solidly for a week, locking horns every day. Throughout those final days, they both thought they were being watched. And we know that Julius Haft was never far away. Despite the risk of being reported to the police for harassment, we know that he'd been trying to contact Charlotte. The day she died, he actually came to the door, Marley told me. She let him in. She wasn't afraid of him. If anything, Haft was the one who needed to be afraid. He still had his arm in a bandage. Although it was mid-morning, Charlotte was already most of the way through a bottle of vodka. She became aggressive, as you might imagine. She didn't want any part of Haft in her life, and she certainly didn't want him in her home. She told him to get out. At the same time, she was shouting at Marley, that it was ridiculous how they were both trying to make her believe Marley was some kind of industrial fabrication. To prove it, Haft grabbed the stone from the bookshelf and brought it down on Marley's head. The stone split in two and fell to the floor. Marley said she felt the impact. It made her stumble, but it didn't hurt. When Charlotte saw this, she freaked out. She went to call the police. Both Marley and Half told her that she mustn't. As Charlotte scrambled to find her mobile, Marley hit her to the back of the head with a clenched fist. Charlotte fell to the floor in a heap. Molly said she had no idea that she'd hit Charlotte so hard, or that she'd even tried to hit her hard. She kept saying it wasn't her fault. She blamed Haft for making her the way she was. She wanted to punish him, but he'd already slipped away. She ran after him, into the rain, but Haft was gone. From time to time, as I noted down this new version of the story, I looked up. Molly's eyes didn't shift once. She was still leaning forward. Our heads were almost touching over the table. I wrote as quickly as I could. She continued to speak quietly so we wouldn't be overheard. At one point I asked, was it you who tore the poem out of the notebook? She nodded. I have to say, apart from the fact that she wasn't crying, she seemed believable. Maybe the rational part of me would never be able to believe what she was saying. But the stillness in her now, and the poem she'd recited, were enough to persuade some other part of me that she might be telling the truth. I thought about it. There was no evidence to support what she was claiming and what you had worked out on your own. As I said at the airport. The fact that she wasn't a person was a possible ground she might use to appeal her conviction for murder. I said something to her then that I wouldn't have believed I was capable of saying. I said, under my breath, it would have to be demonstrated in evidence that she was made of synthetic materials. Marley said, you could just ring my maker. Ring him? The number's in the book. He'll tell you. You mean those numbers in Charlotte's notebook? All you need to know is how they add up, she said What you do is you take each number written down and count two numbers lower Easy peasy It was Scarly's idea when she was getting nuisance calls from him Only, she hid his number in her code because she didn't want me calling the fucker back and telling him what for Did you? Too much bother I shook my head I said it wouldn't be appropriate for me as Marley's lawyer to try to obtain incriminating evidence from Professor Haft I said the whole argument relied on the fact that murder can only be committed by a person If Marley was claiming she wasn't a person what the appeal court would want is an independent medical examination That's not what I want she said What do you want? I want to know if you dug up the body. Izzy read your letter, I said. And? She decided to go on an adventure of her own. Oh, shit. Then she got arrested. Fuck me. As you say. So you never dug up my remains? No one has dug up your remains. Well, that is what I want. But I can't do that. Why not? My role is to offer you legal advice. Even if you know what the truth is? I'm a solicitor, Molly. It's nothing to do with the truth. So we're done then? Not necessarily. No, I think we're done. What about your appeal? She stood up. She smiled. It was a lovely smile. She waved at Mr. Furness. An officer came over to escort her back to her wing. I watched her go. She didn't look back once. There are so many sides to these memories and everything that happened to us. I needed to put it into some kind of perspective. I'm sure you have your own side to tell, Izzy. What I want to emphasize is that, on some level, for a few minutes, I was persuaded to take Marley seriously. It may have been the poem. In fact, I know it was. I'd allowed myself to imagine commissioning a medical report. I could even envisage the glares of astonishment in the Court of Appeal as a panel of judges read that report. I understood something else about the work we did. If it's true, that Molly isn't real, but something made up synthetically, she could never have allowed it to be known. To control the situation, she had to write to a solicitor. Who else was there? She couldn't very well have written to a journalist. With that secret out, it would have been too dangerous to live among humans. What I was left with as I wandered away, lost in my thoughts, was the idea you gifted me, that all she'd ever wanted was justice.